Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Great. Well, we've given everybody the requisite 45 seconds, so we reward those of you who were prompt. I'm Steve Orlands, president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by Eric Heikala. I hope I got that right. Um, who has just come out with a book, a wonderful book, China from a U.S. Policy Perspective, which I have um, right here, which you can all see, and is really a wonderful, what I would call, ride through U.S.-China relations, issue by issue. And in this time when there's so little analysis and so much noise, it really gives the reader a tremendous basis to make judgments about um, what the policy towards China in the United States should be. Um, you have his biography. He is currently, so I will just say, he is currently a professor at the USC Price School of Public Policy at the University of Southern California. So I'm wearing my jacket today as opposed to only my tie because it's cold in New York and I need to wear a jacket. Yeah. I'm sure that is not the case in Los Angeles. So Eric will kick it off with maybe 10 minutes, kind of an overview of the book. Then I'll ask some questions and the audience um, can ask questions through the Q&A function um, on your screen. But it's a... Um, you know, it's just a, it's a wonderful read. And I think it's wonderful, not only for students, it will be wonderful for professors who can use it um, as almost the textbook for how U.S.-China relations uh, should be approached. And it's wonderful for policy people like me. And like, I hope those either in the Trump or the Biden administration who need to rethink um, what, our China policy should be, because it touches on virtually every subject that um, the U.S. needs to focus on in terms of China. But let me not spend all of the, the hour giving the introduction and turn it over to you, and then we'll, uh, we'll, I'll ask some questions, and then the audience can ask some questions. Welcome. Thank you for your time, and thank you for the book. Well, thank you so much for that very kind introduction, Steve. And uh, Thank you also to you and uh, colleagues at the uh, National Committee for U.S.-China Relations for putting this event together. I'm really pleased and honored to be able to join you and uh, thank you to all of you who have, are joining as well. So I thought what I'd do is start with just a very quick sort of overview, more as a way to sort of provide a framework for the uh, ensuing discussion. And with that in mind, uh, if I may share screen, I will go ahead and do so. And here we are. So I believe you're looking at this PPT. As Steve just mentioned, uh, this book looks at distinct policy spheres. There are nine uh, core chapters, each which focuses on a different policy sphere. And those nine in turns are grouped into three uh, broader spheres, economic policy, 
policies about sustainability and geopolitical policies. And so those nine chapters fit into those different realms. And the key point is that uh, each policy sphere has its own context and its own sort of intrinsic logic. And so how we may be engaging with China and how China's rise impacts policy in one poli domain, one policy sphere, doesn't necessarily tell us what's going on in another. And as a very quick example of that, um, here, here I've got three graphs related to those three spheres, an economic and a sustainability and a geopolitical one. And I won't try to take time here and now to go into this in detail, but just to even eyeballing this quickly, where red represents China's growth in GDP or carbon dioxide emissions or in uh, defense expenditures and blue represents US, all being indexed to 100 for US level in the year 1990, uh, we can see just readily, just by looking at it very quickly that what what's going on in these different spheres is quite different and needs therefore to be addressed in, on its own terms. But while most of the book is taking this kind of vertical deep dives as it were into these nine different spheres, uh, part of what I try to do as well is to think about how these different policy, policy spheres hang together and influence each other. And, again, without going into this uh, in any detail uh, at this moment, uh, this is a kind of an overview at the end of the book of how the different elements uh, hang together and what the implications of that are. So again, the book is, is really focused on policy analysis. And um, I think point that's a premise for this is that China bashing in itself is not policy analysis. I like to use an analogy of uh, how the moon affects the tides, where China is kind of the moon, the rising China is, 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 is the moon, and it essentially affects the policy spheres that we work in. So even if our focus is not on the moon. We don't have to be astronomers. We may, we may have a very earthbound focus thinking about how to navigate tidal, uh, tide, waters in a tidal basin. It would be advisable to think about how the moon's movements affect those tides. And so this book approaches these different topics in a similar way, that China's rise influences the kind of natural equilibrium that might fall within these different policy spheres and the configurations that arise. Uh, I also want to give a nod to the reports produced by the Congressional Research Service, which I found to be an invaluable uh, resource for preparing this material, and I recommend them highly. And I consider those to be a model of good policy writing, laying out different options in what uh, is as much as possible a kind of a neutral way. And of course, CRS uh, writers must, must be trained to do that because they need to be trusted uh, on both sides of the aisle in Congress. And so that's, that's really a kind of a model for what we're trying to do within this book. The other thing within the context of policy analysis is that I find that 
a lot of the issues that bring the US and China together uh, have to do with the fact that there are increasingly in a globalized world, there are global public goods and case of climate change and pandemic is, are two very compelling examples. And we know from economic analysis, from policy analysis that, that when we have public goods, there's, there are certain um, apparatus, certain guidelines for trying to achieve the, the, achieve the proper results. And that really has implications for how the US and China work together. Likewise, club theory, which is an extension of the public goods literature, has much to offer in this regard. While the mathematics and the formal theorizing of club theory can be a little bit arcane, the, the, the basic idea as a metaphor that we are, there are clubs are very applicable here in terms of things like trade theory, uh, for example, where uh, these analytical tools can be very helpful for us in thinking about appropriate US policy. And that lends itself then to this broader notion of an institutional approach. Again, where there are things like climate change or international trade agreements, pandemics, uh, working through some kind of global mechanisms uh, is seemingly really the only practical way to proceed. So trying to give health to those, making sure that those institutions are indeed viable should be a priority for us. And also the fact that US and China are in fact very different in so many important ways, yet share a leadership role in terms of these new institutions actually gives an opportunity for constructive um, cooperation between the US and China in terms of defining world order that works uh, not just for the US, not just for China, but more broadly. And again, climate change was a good example of that uh, when prior to the Paris Accords, US and China reached a reasonable agreement about what would be a, um, an appropriate trade-off and that in itself provided leadership for what led to the Paris Accord. Another thing when we look at, again, going back to this diagram, this dotted line represents what is, uh, I view, a kind of a missing link in terms of the strategic dialogues that we have with China. We have strategic dialogues relating to, to trade. We have strategic dialogues relating to uh, defense but we don't have strategic dialogues relating to uh, sustainability. And sustainability, because of its very nature, is actually something that by its, by its intrinsic nature would, tends to promote cooperation uh, between US and China. And we need more of that rather than less of that. Finally, another recurring theme that emerged, I didn't go into the book with this theme, but I came out of the book with this theme, which is that a lot of the topic issues, while what China does is very important and we need to pay attention to it and some, is, some things that China does are we would welcome and some things they do uh, we would definitely not welcome. But throughout, it became increasingly clear to me that putting our own house in order is really uh, imperative, partly because that is something that we control directly. And 
it has it's true in terms of the realm of economic policy in terms of the realm of sustainability policy and geopolitically and another thing that comes out of this is that we don't operate alone and we really cannot operate alone uh, in this global context we do need friends we do need alliances but in order for that to work we ourselves need to be a good friend we need to demonstrate that through our reliability, through the values that we hold, and that we demonstrate through our actions. So, for example, in the case of human rights, uh, it's one thing to hector China about human rights abuses, which clearly are there, but it would be much more powerful if in addition to doing that, we were also to pay attention to human rights issues here at home. And that brings to the final point, which is that, uh, of course, a key difference between China and the US is that the US is a democracy. And we're soon next week going through a democratic exercise. And that really holds a lot of responsibility for us as individuals, um, that it's too easy for us to point the finger at politicians, uh, an accusing finger at politicians. But in fact, they arise as a product of the environment that we create through the values that we hold, through the discourse that we conduct. And part of the purpose of this book is to try to foster a discourse that is more informed, more rational, more policy oriented, and that takes a clear eyed view as to what our interests truly are. And so that's a quick summary, Steve, of what I tried to do uh, in this book. That's a great introduction. You know, one thing jumped to mind as, as I was look, listening to your introduction, um, the charts, defense expenditures make sense looking at as a whole. Um, GDP, you can argue, should we be looking per capita? Should we be looking at total GDP? You can argue, argue total GDP. When you look at CO2 emissions, shouldn't we be looking at that on a per capita basis where the United States still is is more than two and a half times what China's per capita CO2 emissions are? Well, it depends on, you know, which number we look at depends on, you know, what question we're asking at the time. In terms of CO2, ultimately, uh, climate change is brought about by the total carbon dioxide emissions. So I would argue that Ultimately, that's what we need to pay attention to is the total emissions going in. In terms of thinking about questions of what is, what are the what is a, uh, an appropriate and fair sharing of the burden, then I would think that yes, looking at um, per capita is um, carbon emissions gives a sense of the individual component but ultimately we have to start with those total numbers and then work at apportioning uh the responsibility for for re reductions the chinese forever argue not not only should be per capita it should be historical contributions to co2 emissions and because china was very late to that game the historical contributions even though the eu is the best today their historical contributions and America's historical contributions are much, much greater than China. Yes, and I, I actually think that there is some merit to that argument, that in a sense, 
no one's producing carbon dioxide because they want to. Carbon dioxide emissions are a byproduct of the process of industrialization and economic development. And so I think there is a legitimate argument to be advanced by China, India, and many other countries in the global south that, well, it's easy for you all to say in, in the United States and in Europe, you've already developed, you've already gone through that process, and now you're telling us that we must, that we must limit those um, uh, emissions. And in a sense, I think it can be portrayed, but I don't think it's an accurate portrayal that it's us looking to hold them back economically. But I think that it's that acknowledging that perspective is a good example of where China and the US can uh, provide global leadership because there is a kind of uh, gulf between the global south and the global north in terms of um, climate change, both in terms of mitigation and in terms of the impacts. But getting 191 countries to bargain with each other one-on-one -on -one is, is madness, right? And so where are we going to get some kind of framework? Well, if we can take the largest emitter in the world, which is China, and uh, we can get the second largest emitter in the world, which is the United States, one of which is kind of representative of the global north, one of which is representative of the global south, uh, to agree on some kind of fair-minded trade-off that takes into consideration the global limits that are needed and the equity that is called for, I see that as the only way we really have hope of succeeding. Yeah, I, I would argue that that's exactly what the Paris Accords did and that the run-up to the Paris Accords were discussions of those issues and now what's happened over the intervening three plus years now that we've withdrawn is we have forgotten about what went into that. Um, let's talk, you know, the beginning of the book is about fiscal policy and deficits. It's about trade policy. It talks about how, and very much as you said in your introduction, talks about how we need to get our house in order at home, which is very much what uh, Center for New American Policy and others have talked about. And it talks about U.S. policies that encourage consumption in excess of production as the root cause of our trade deficit. Can you talk about how that relates to the trade deficit and relates to and the discussion of RMB valuation? Yes. I mean, in some ways it's complicated and in some ways it's not. And I prefer to think of it in ways that are not. And so if we, if we sort of think about it in a fairly straightforward simple way, we are actually consuming more than we produce, right? And so that, that deficit has to come from somewhere. And so where it comes from is we essentially import that residual. And so the flip side of that is saying that if we were in fact not to run these deficits in terms of, for example, government expenditures that exceed uh, what brings in in terms of taxation and likewise in the private sector, then there wouldn't be a need to fill that gap. And in fact, it, it wouldn't happen. And this is something that um, 
it's, again, it's a kind of simple thing, but it's easy to misunderstand that that relationship it actually comes out of the national income accounts. And it's, it's actually an identity. And again, I like to use a very simple analogy. Suppose I have a pizza and I take some portion of that pizza and eat it. Well, by definition, what I took away and what remains is the total. And it doesn't matter what the size of the pizza was. It doesn't matter what, how much I took away. That general identity of what I took away plus what remains equals what was there in the first place. That's an example of an identity that is robust to the particular numbers involved. And that relationship that you allude to is an identity. It will always be true, just as it's always true that what I take away and what is left is equal to the, what was there to begin with. So do you think RMB valuation has not played a major role in the creation of this trade deficit? And I'm not talking about in the last few years when it's probably been, been properly valued, but back in the days when we were arguing it was improperly valued, that it was undervalued. I would argue that the size of the deficits we run are in fact related, the trade deficits we run are related to things like the defi fiscal deficits we have here at home. The, a devaluation of the renminbi might determine what share of the imports we have come from China as opposed to elsewhere. But it doesn't determine what our multilateral current account deficit is. Correct. I don't think the renminbi drives that. I think it's, it's, it's a, that would be the tail wagging the dog. Yeah. So, I mean, I, when I took Economics 101, <laughs> I think I learned that. Why do you think that is so controversial today? When, what, what I think is just a, an economic fact. I mean, economics is a science. And, you know, the current account deficit will be equal to the sum of the federal deficit plus the shortfall of domestic savings relative to private sector savings, which the book explicitly states. Why is that? in America today, controversial? Well, I think, you know, I myself, well, like you, I probably learned it as if in Econ 101, but I don't remember learning it then. When, when I first learned it and sort of recognized, felt that I recognized the importance of it, I, I was already a PhD student in economics uh, when I learned that. So I think the fact that many people in the US don't have that identity sort of in mind uh, is understandable, but it also underlines the importance of education, doesn't it? Yes. Why do, should we even talk about bilateral trade deficits? Is it something that should even be in the national discourse given kind of the underlying, underlying economic facts? I, I think you're raising a very important point. I mean, I think we can talk about them, but I think that uh, I think your, your point is, I would agree with it. I, I think that we need to look at the fundamentals of what are driving these deficits. And then the fact that those, you know, those deficits are linked to China, that is a secondary issue that may still have some importance. But if we were to drive down our deficits, then the secondary issue would take care of itself, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, 
the beauty of that part of the book, the very beginning, the first third of the book where it focuses on that is the explication is just crystal clear. You kind of read that. Now, I, again, I remember it from way back when and obviously focusing on the trade issues, it's been, it's been important, but it, it is, it's the valuation will divert part of the trade deficit. So from China to Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Indonesia, Malaysia, whatever, Sri Lanka, uh, but it doesn't fundamentally change what our, the United States, current account deficit is because that's driven by savings. And it's amazing that that has become controversial in the United States. It, it, it's, it's... Well, part of what becomes controversial is what we do after we recognize that fact, because then uh, what it certainly suggests we need to do is to reduce deficit. But um, what was it, the Bowles Simpson back in about a decade ago, uh, that was, I think, the last really valiant attempt uh, within Congress to, to address this issue in a constructive way. And unfortunately, it failed. And again, that comes back to this question of democracy. And you know, in a sense, if we, the public, were to insist that uh, that our elected members were to address this, my guess is that they would put more attention to it. Has this gotten, uh, the book was completed kind of at the very beginning of COVID, probably before we spent however many trillions of dollars in COVID relief. What is that gonna do to the situation of our- It'll, our it'll definitely exacerbate it, right? I mean, the, the in a sense, the, policy framework that I develop is, is kind of independent of the magnitudes involved, you know, almost like back to the pizza example, right? Whether you take a small piece or a large piece, you know, that, that fundamental relationship still remains. But in a sense, I think COVID is causing us to take a much larger piece out. And so what remains is much less. Yeah. Talk of the book, I got another great session, section where, because I always wrestle with this number and I've wrestled with it in, in public, um, jobs lost to China. I mean, mm. you, you cite some examples. Um, you know, I've heard people in government say it's, you know, three million. Um, is that, and I think the book really is suggesting it's somewhere between five and 600,000. Uh, over the last decade, I think. Is that right? Correct. Actually, yes. Um, I, I actually cite some studies there that have yes. done, right? And uh, there are some great studies that are out there. So the, based on those, what I uh, concluded, kind of what I found the most convincing research out there, has the number of manufacturing jobs lost over the last decade. And that was subject, that was at the time that that study was done, which itself was a few years ago, um, was about 55 workers in the manufacturing sector out of every 10,000. So 55 out of 10,000, about half of 1% uh, could be, uh, there. those job losses could be attributed uh, to trade with China. And what that does not do is look at the jobs that are gained. There are other jobs 
in the US that are created through uh, exchange with China. So uh, not, not all work is in the manufacturing sector. The, one of the problems is uh, that not so much the magnitude of the jobs that are lost, but they tend to be uh, kind of concentrated in specific areas. Uh, obviously, the, the areas that have a lot of the old manufacturing jobs, uh, which are no longer as viable in today's economy, those are actually communities that are, that are hit. It's not just the, the person who's laid off that's impacted, but that person's family and the community that's around it and the kind of transfer payments. So, so there are some places in the US where the pain is gonna be very real. So again, part of the challenge is thinking about, well, how do we uh, do more equitable uh, burden sharing here at home, right? If, because the flip side, of course, is from trade with China is one of the reasons that there has been a lot of trade is that you and I and everybody else in the United States who's purchasing goods are typically able to buy goods for lower price than they might otherwise. So we could, by having higher prices, perhaps avoid some of that, but then there's also a consumer burden. And so with a consumer burden, it tends to be shared a bit more equitably but with these job losses, they tend to be somewhat quite unequal. So burden sharing is something we need to address. Yeah. I see your colleague and our friend, uh, you know, Clay's got a good question. I promise I will get to it. And I should tell the audience that questions should be put in our Q&A, not in the chat function, in the Q&A function. And now I'll have my last question, at least on economics, then we'll get on to the yeah. uh, other part of the uh, other parts of the book. Um, you know, the book says, which I know is correct, that China holds about 7% of US government debt, and then talks about um, potential risk of, you know, things go really south in US-China relations, um, selling off that. Can you talk about, is that a real risk or is that just something that exists kind of in, in, uh, in fantasy? I, I see it as less of a, of a concern, right? I mean, it's, it's possible in principle that China could uh, sell off these assets, but one question is who's gonna buy them, right? Um, and the, the impact on that, and it doesn't necessarily help China's cause. It would be a little bit of cutting off one's nose to spite one's face. So uh, there are a lot of other things that I worry about before I worry about that. Yeah, I, I would argue, in fact, it's not, it's not a risk at all because the biggest loser uh, of selling their holdings would be China. So if China wants to punish itself, um, it certainly is free to choose to do that, but it seems highly unlikely given the sophistication of those in their in their uh, kind of asset management um, bureaucracy. They kind of understand what would happen there. Um, the, the section on energy policy, um, you talk about, you, you're actually optimistic about that as an area where the United States and China could cooperate. Can you talk about that? Yes, and that was 
something that I hadn't realized until I really began to uh, work on this. And I think there are two significant points that I would raise in that regard. One is that ultimately, the US and China have a shared interest in seeing global energy supplies expand and in seeing global demand for energy contract. So it's not as though our interests are, are intrinsically sort of antagonistic in that regard, right? You, you now, mean global demand for fossil fuels? Well, energy supply, energy. right. Energy clean supply energy generally, is, including yeah. fossil fuels, right? That generally shifting the supply curve out eases the burden, shifting the demand curve back in uh, also eases, eases the burden, tends to bring down energy prices. Now there are environmental consequences as well, and so that's why I think it links. So that brings you to the second point, which is that not only I think are our interests aligned, broadly speaking, in terms of energy policy, but also energy is very strategic. Energy is one of the few commodities that links both to the economic realm, because energy is an input into almost all economic activity, both in China, the US, and anywhere else. So, so the economic importance of energy as a primary input is very important. But energy also, of course, is linked to sustainability issues, that all of these, the clean energy is the key to attaining so many of these sustainability goals. So we have uh, also incentive to collaborate there. And of course, energy is also important uh, geo from a geopolitical perspective as well. You know, Daniel Jurgen's books on, on the oil industry are, are classics. And um, that's, so energy has, has is, is nice in that it's quite concise and concrete on its own terms, but it links so readily to all of these other spheres. So I think that by engaging with China, by taking the initiative to engage with China initiative, positively around energy policy will tend to put a positive hue on some of the other areas where we should also be pursuing collaboration. And, and I assume your strategic dialogue on sustainable development, which comes later in the book, is actually part and parcel of that whole energy cooperation. Exactly right. Yeah, so which would be, I don't know what a second term President Trump would do, but given uh, Vice President Biden's focus on uh, climate change and sustainable development, one would hope that um, we could see some, following your advice, some creation of a sustainable development dialogue. Though I guess my question then becomes, is trust between, not really part of your book, but is trust between the United States and China so damaged so potentially irreparably damaged that you can't have these strategic dialogues going on. There really are none, with the exception of some discussion between uh, Secretary Mnuchin, Ambassador Lighthizer, and Liu He, very limited, relating to trade, not really investment and other things. There's not, there are no dialogues going on. Yeah, I, 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 I use, use the word irreparable. I, my hope is, and my belief is, we're not 
at that point yet. Uh, and I hope we, we don't get there because it's so needless and it's so costly. It's not in our interest to, to lose that. I mean, this isn't about, you know, not hurting China's feelings. This is about thinking uh, in a realistic way about what is in our interest and having these kinds of strategic dialogues and fostering the trust that will make those effective is in our interest um, properly understood. Yes. Yep. I mean, it will be, there will be, depends on who's elected and then it depends on, on who is the Secretary of State, National Security Advisor, and a lot of other positions where that's going to come out. Um, you've got a very interesting chapter on urban policy, which is kind of an, uh, an un, unusual kind of part of looking at U.S.-China relations. And one of it, one tiny portion of it is, is kind of mainland Chinese buyers of U.S. real estate. Is that, I mean, that's basically stopped. Um, you know, the capital controls um, have limited Chinese ability to buy U.S. real estate. And I think the book calls the United States the gold standard um, with increasing anti-Chinese racism in the United States. Is it still the gold standard? And will, if we have a different administration, different rhetoric, will it come back? I think this is another example of that key word, irreparable damage, right? Uh, clearly, there's been damage uh, by some of these changes in cultural attitudes here in the U.S., but I think even more so by um, the pandemic. And as you say, capital controls within China them, uh, itself is having... Um, some impact, but my sense is that um, depending on what we do here at home, uh, we do have the potential to reestablish our place in the world as a kind of beacon. You know, I myself am Canadian originally, I'm, so when I speak of the U.S. As, as, as a beacon, I like to do so from my original stance as a native Canadian. Right, uh, so that it's not sort of self, just brigado, right? Um, and you know, the U.S. does have this role. You know, I work at at a wonderful university, and it's amazing sometimes. I look around the table and see how many of the best and brightest from around the world are seated here around our table. And I think, well, that's something that's really incredible about the United States is that we have that draw, and that's something that we shouldn't take for granted. But you really need two things to go on. One, obviously, you need the United States to once again become the bright, shining city on the hill and become attractive. And part of that is there needs to be policies adopted um, that kind of advocate changes in, in, in kind of the way we're dealing with Chinese and Asian Americans in the United States, that the upsurge in, in violence and racist uh, activities towards uh, Asian Americans is stunning and deeply depressing. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's shocking what is going on. And the question is, once that becomes part of the narrative, can 
Will Chinese once again believe this is the gold standard? And the other part is the capital controls. I mean, I thought they never should have been put in place. There were people in China, in the Chinese government at senior positions who agreed with me. And I said, this is a terrible idea. They said, we know, we're only gonna do it for a while. That was now, what, eight years ago? Seven years ago? Uh -huh. It's been years. So China, I don't know if the government is gonna be comfortable with easing up on capital controls because they're so fearful of what I think are excessive reserves. You're right, right. So I, I, in terms of the attitudes, I think it, it begins at the top, you know, of course, if we have, you know, a leader of the country um, that does not show respect for others, then that undermines Americans uh, sort of the way the world abroad looks at us in the United States. But it also falls down to each of us as individuals and um, sort of standing up for uh, what we believe to be the proper values. And I think many of us uh, rejoice living in a cosmopolitan world, love exposure to cultures, uh, and so many facets of it. The, um, I'm gonna to get to the questions. I see the questions are building up in the Q&A, but let me just ask one final question, which is the, the book doesn't talk enough about the values conflict between the United States and China. It doesn't, in my view, focus on, you know, what is going on in Xinjiang, in Tibet, the increasing crackdown on lawyers who represent dissidents, on dissidents and stuff. It, it, talk about it in terms of competing operating systems, but it's much more, that understates the difference. Should there have been a section on values that that was kind, that's kind of missing? That's a good point. And, you know, as you say it, you know, competing operating systems sounds a little bit sterile, right? right. Competing value systems um, maybe tilted a little bit too much the other way, right? But um, I, I think maybe competing value systems and how to operationalize competing value systems may be a way to think about that. But I think your, your point is well taken. You know, the, the, I guess I see it from an on the ground. You know, there, there are a lot of things following, you know, what you lay out in the book that could be, that could be done, which would improve the lives of Americans. Right. We're, we're hurting ourselves. We're especially, in my view, hurting the middle class and lower income people in the United States through tariffs, through a variety of other things which punish it doesn't punish the rich people much. It does punish the poor people a lot. Failure to reinvest in ourselves. Rich people, you know, it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal if infrastructure deteriorates to the, the working class of America. Um, but when you make suggestions, they say, well, in these policies that are helping Americans, you're also helping the Chinese when they're engaged in, you know, what the Biden campaign has called genocide. Right, so the book is more about U.S. policies and sort of U.S. policy realms uh, 
and, and it's not really a book in that sense, a book about China, but about how the rise of China influences these policy considerations. But the example you give is an example where the policy in question is intrinsically about value with human rights. And in Xinjiang and elsewhere, again, US standing up for these kinds of values and the free flow of information is another thing and respect for information. You know, when, yeah. when I go to China, I'm a scholar. You know, I, I, like, I like to get information. And increasingly over the last 10 years, when I go to China, I find myself in, you know, more and more kind of boxed in. I, it's a greater effort for me to go and reach information around from, from elsewhere uh, in the world. And so it's human rights and uh, just a kind of the paradigm we have for, for narratives, kind of global narratives, is, is something that we stand for. But again, it, it does come back to us. I think that more rather than just pointing at China and saying what they're doing is bad, we need to put more emphasis as well on thinking about that what we do is exemplary. You know, so I, I love the chart, you know, where, where you, you, it's the circle where you have all the different chapters and you try to show how each one kind of affects the other and it shows the it's, it's kind of, it, and I love that because I have tried in my thousands of meetings with, with Chinese, I have tried to explain what I call the bleed over effect of policies. Mm. So, for instance, when China started its policy in the South China Sea, I said, you know, this is going to affect everything. This will affect people's, the world's view of your adherence to WTO. This will affect the world's view of your peacekeeping because you're operating in, in, in violation of international law. And it'll affect whether people believe what you're doing in the information area because it will create a presumption. And that, that's what that chart does. It's, it's, again, everybody, it's worth you know, looking at these because it really visually tells the story kind of, of how each of these um, sectors affect each other. And they do. And I have always used the term bleed over. Um, and it, it does have, when, when a lawyer is a, arrested, well, Chinese have said, well, it's a lawyer being arrested and he broke the rules. I said, it affects the views of every lawyer in the United States because they think that could be them. And it affects their view of your foreign policy, of your policy towards Taiwan, of your policies in the South China Sea, that, that it has this, this bleed over effect. Um, and it, it's, I think it's great that the, that the, book, um, that the book does this. Um, let's talk, I mentioned Taiwan. Um, you talk about, um, you know, potentially ending the, the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity for Taiwan, on Taiwan. Um, Richard Haas has now written about that, uh, suggesting we should do that, that it further protects Taiwan. Do you agree with that? I, I must confess that I probably agonize over the Taiwan issue more than any others. You know, so 
what I do in the book is sort of lay out sort of some pros and cons, but I tell you quite honestly, I, I agonize over that because there are compelling reasons. The, the truth is, I, I think there's a lot of validity in China's claims. When you go back and look at the historical progression, you know, there's, um, it's, it's, there's been a kind of case of mission creep, as it were, right? That the way Taiwan is viewed has, has evolved in the US as conditions have evolved. But there is, we talk about looking for legitimate claims, kind of an international law. We want to apply international law in the case of the law, in the law of the sea. And, you know, there was that famous case where China's claims with the, 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 the dashed line, right, the nine dash line in um, the South China Sea was refuted by the Hague, right? And so we like to express outrage that China would ignore that. Yet, at the same time, that in, if we want to make that argument for real, then we need to think about how it applies in the case of Taiwan. Yet at the same time, Taiwan represents something else. It represents something emotional. I mean, it's a, it's a friend and an ally, and it's, it has some shared values, and, and it's looking to um, build a system based on democratic principles and human rights that sort of resonate with those of us in the West. And the thought of sort of abandoning uh, an ally like that, in addition to the you know, heart-wrenching um, impact that that would have as a precedent in terms of potential allies around the world, it's also very difficult. So I, I quite, Truthfully, as I say, I, I haven't come down sort of clearly one way or the other, except to uh, sort of agonize more. Yeah, I guess my view, which I've articulated before, is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm -hmm. You know, I was a student in Taiwan 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, the developments in Taiwan over this 50 years has been fabulous. You know, it's it's changed. When I lived there, it was an authoritarian state. It's now uh, a democratic state, uh, cross-strait relations were for a time as as peaceful and prosperous as they had been, you know, ever. Um, and our policy of strategic ambiguity served as the foundation for those developments. So I would kind of go, wow. So one of the U.S. foreign policies that has actually succeeded in improving the lives of the people in Taiwan, improving the lives of the people in the mainland, and making sure no Americans died. Um, you know, I, I would argue that that is not wise policy uh, to go into that and, and, uh, and try and change it. Um, I better ask Clay's, Clay has said that we need to ask this question because um, it's, it's somebody else's question who doesn't have their name, but he says it's a great question. It says, and, and this, I guess, relates to the earlier part of our conversation where I talked about how clear parts of the book are. And it, and it just, you know, it's economics, one, it's basic understanding of how the world and trade flows and investment work, which is the U.S. think tanks and academia have any remaining value when U.S. political decisions seem to be completely disassociated to their output? Is the ivory tower just talking to themselves 
our China policy is driven by extremist ideologues. Well, that's what that's a void that this book is trying to fill. And I think the answer to the person's question is, yes, I think they still have value, but whether, um, you know, whether others recognize that value is a different question and whether the political system we have uh, as it's currently uh, running and uh, configured, whether it's designed to really assign proper value uh, to the products of these think tanks, I think is, is an open question. Again, it's something like the CRS reports that I mentioned earlier. They have tremendous value in my view, when just from reading them, I, I found them to be you know, excellent. Now, whether they influence policy making as much as I wish they would, uh, I think not, you know, that there are, you know, not everything about our political system is perfect. There are some flaws and that's, this is one place where it shows up. Had, you know, if I'm just talking to you folks at USC, it's not a very productive, I mean, I love you guys, but that's not a very productive way for either you or Clay or me to be spending our time. If we're not influencing the policy discussion, if you're creating a great book like this, which lays out basically, it lays out the facts, but people just kind of go, huh, whatever. Well, what are we doing wrong? Um, I think it's like a, a composer of music, right? I mean, the composing a book is like composing a piece of music and the composer's job is to compose a beautiful piece of music, right? And whether you or I have the, the wits about us to go and appreciate that music, it may not be our style, is a different thing. But um, I, I think the a necessary but not sufficient condition is that these books and reports and think tanks do their work. That's a necessary but not sufficient condition. The, su the sufficiency is that people actually pay attention to that output. Not just this book, but the whole, you know, there's an ongoing policy discourse that has great merit. And, you know, I like to think that this book is, 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 is a contributing factor to that. But we all need to pay attention to that. And that comes back to my earlier comments about democracy and an, and an informed public. Ultimately, in a democracy, it's both the, a blessing and a curse that we are, in fact, accountable for what happens. And we are, in fact, accountable for what our leaders are doing. And we are, in fact, accountable for policy priorities. And that puts the onus on us to be an informed public. And here's some of the, here's some, here are some materials that can help. If you'd written the book today, um, obviously you're, you're focusing on the U.S. side, but we're seeing the Chinese change, um, not slowly, you know, so we've seen further tightening in Xinjiang. We've seen the national security law in Hong Kong. We've seen U.S. policy response to that. We're seeing on the economic side, we're seeing increased party participation in the economy. Would you have written the book differently? 
I think. And of I course, COVID, I should add to that. I left that out. Yes. Well, it's funny because I was, you know, almost busy scribbling the last words of the, of the book as COVID was breaking out, you know, so, so it was, it's a bit crazy, but I think largely the answer to your question is no, I don't think I would have written the book differently, but I think the urgency of, of the book is increased. Uh, in fact, I even mentioned that in one part of the book that uh, when I started the book, you know, some time ago, I felt it was important. And as I finally progressed to the point of getting it out and published, I, I feel that it's more important than ever, but for all the wrong reasons. Both what's happening here at home and for what's happening in China. And in a sense, as we find ourselves in more turmoil and sort of more chaotic conditions here at home, uh, in some sense that detracts our attention and global attention away from some of the things that are happening in China that you've alluded to that we all should be paying more attention to. In your section in Foreign Relations, you write, China does not seek to overthrow the institutions and norms of the evolving world order. Do you think the US government, the current US government agrees with you? And if it doesn't, why do you think they don't agree with that view? And the Secretary of State has pretty much explicitly stated that's not what he thinks. Right, I think the Trump administration doesn't hold, doesn't share that view. Um, and you know, there are things that I, I think it's partly based on some grievances that are genuine. Again, things like manufacturing loss, trade deficit, or things that are happening in the South China Sea, or things that are happening in Xinjiang or in Hong Kong. So there are, there are things that developments in China that really are, uh, require our attention. But I don't think that undermines, certainly we, I don't believe we're yet at the point where that, as you say, question, irreparably damaged the potential for having constructive dialogue with China about it. It takes two sides to have constructive dialogue. And um, so again, a necessary but sufficient condition is that we ourselves be ready to do this. And one concern I have is that over the last few years, we've really not demonstrated in any convincing way that we are open and to constructive dialogue and that that is our preferred uh, method of addressing these issues. Yeah, the, the question really, you, you focus on the precise right word is irreparable, that it can this be um, kind of fixed in part and will the Chinese, you know, the Chinese are guilty of lots of stuff too. So you have two sides that have enacted policies uh, that are deeply damaging to themselves and to the other side. So the question becomes, um, can through strategic dialogues and other, a lot of this be fixed? Uh, I, I, I think the jury is out. I think the longer we wait, the more difficult the task will be. And it's all, we've already put ourselves 
um, I think quite a bit behind on on this. So I'm I, I think there's real real reason for concern. So as I say, the books in my my own view is that the topics that are addressed by the book are all the more important now, but for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. This is the book. Um, what I hope happens is that in, if there is a transition that they take each chapter of this book and they run a working group um, meeting to kind of focus on what the policies should be for, or for each of those different subjects. And that would be a, uh, a great way to kind of get a sensible policy before January 20th. And if there's a re-election instead of an election of a new president, I hope they do the same and that they look at a lot of the, the facts that as they exist um, and you know, try and come up with some policies that help the American people more. So everybody, this is a, we're out of time, but this is a wonderful read. I would say for those in the field and outside of the field, it is a must read. It's just the clearest explication of so many of the issues relating to US-China relations. And as I told Eric at the beginning of the meeting, I didn't have time to read all the footnotes, but if you wanted to do that, then it's gonna become a real research project. But thank you so much. Thank you for giving of your time. Thank you for answering these questions and thank you for doing the book. It's uh, much appreciated by all of us. It's very kind of you. It's certainly my pleasure. And you had some great questions. <laughs> Always a student. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.